Welcome to Heartside Chats. This is Dr. Chelsea Wakefield in conversation with my friend, Lisa Stutzman-Graves. And we are talking about all things related to life, love, and the pursuit of consciousness. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy. Hey, Chelsea, how's it going? It's going well. It is hot here in Little Rock. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I can't believe it's July. We're almost to Christmas. Blink our eyes and we'll be at Christmas. Yeah, it goes by fast. It really does. So you've been Thank busy. goodness, in the heat. You've been busy. You've got uh, another Luminous Women coming up. Tell us about that. I do. It's in September, September 9th through 11th. And you can find out more about it on my website. Download a brochure and register. We just have yeah. a few more rooms left. It's going to be awesome. The Luminous Woman Weekend is something I've been doing for 12 years. You came to one maybe yep. about 10 years ago. I'm a graduate and of the Asheville class. North that's Carolina. right. A graduate of the Asheville class. And uh, this is a life-changing weekend for women to really understand their archetypal profile and understand what they need to integrate to move forward into the person they were born to be. Mm. Well... I look forward to it. I will be there this time. But yes, go to www.chelseawakefield.com to find out more. And we hope to see you there. But I thought we'd start off today's podcast uh, talking again about Labyrinth of Love and uh, some of the challenges that couples run into once the kind of starry-eyed love kind of fades away a little bit. And I love, I don't know if we're going to get through all this in in one session, but uh, I love some of the titles, the the Swamplands of Love, How to Get Out of That, The Drama Triangle, Shadow Boxing, just a lot of really good words here. And I don't know exactly where you want to start it off other than maybe you want to tell us about a story about a couple that came to you and um, they kind of had the story phase gone and then they found themselves in the Swamplands of Love and how you helped them get through it. Yes, I actually I have a lot of couples that do that. And in the book, I talk about Robert and Sarah, who start out with all these positive projections. She seems like, you know, the girl he's always been looking for. And he is her knight in shining armor and just projections pinging back and forth. The Mutual Admiration Society, you are everything I've ever wanted. And being in the light of someone thinking you're everything they always wanted tends to draw out our best qualities. We are really... Um, showing up as our best selves because it's so wonderful to be idealized like that. And then over time, especially when you get into the practicalities of life, especially when you add children or you get into heavy-duty careers, people get busy. They get cranky. They And also, you know, so that, so that early playfulness of the early part of the relationship tends to fade into the background unless we're intentional about thinking about the archetype of those playful lovers and learning what I call the capacity to shift states, the capacity to really set aside times when we are not in our responsible selves, when we're not being mom and dad, when we're not being sons and daughters of our parents or professional workers. Um, One of the things I try to do when I get home from work as I'm stepping over the threshold of the door is I am no longer wanting to be a psychotherapist. I'm no longer wanting to be in that mode because I want to be a relational person. I want to be 
lover, friend, wife, chef, um, playmate, all those things, instead of some professional person who has all the answers. I don't want to be that when I'm home with my husband. What my dad would do, if I could jump in there a minute, is, uh, and this was way back in the probably 70s, 80s, 90s, is that when he pulled into the garage, when he turned off his car, he would mentally turn off his work. I personally didn't have success with that, but he really did. I like that so much. Turn off the car, turn off the work. And it's harder nowadays because a lot of us are working from home. And also the advent of cell phones, um, there's, a, there's a pressure on people to be available like 16 hours a day, particularly if you have certain kinds of jobs. So I, I think that's a societal issue that we've got to really start setting some limits so that we actually have some downtime. But that's a whole nother topic. We could yeah. talk about that. I'm not going to take on society tonight. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but the, really developing a capacity to turn off the outside world, turn off your other roles and shift into a playful state. I think playfulness is so important for couples, which is why sometimes I recommend to people, you need to get away once a quarter, mm-hmm. away from home, away from the kids, go someplace where you can have a Friday night to rest, a Saturday night to play, uh, or a Saturday day to play. And then somewhere in there, you need to have a really beautiful lovemaking session, either oh, yeah. Saturday night or Sunday morning before you check out. And just to really move into that playful, like that early stage when you were just exploring the world together. So, after that early stage, which seems to be always in the early idealization and the enchantment phase, you move into this disillusionment phase where you begin to become disenchanted. And that's where we begin to meet the rest of the cast who comes out from behind <laughs> the curtains. And those might involve some hurt little inner kids, um, some rebel children, re- rebel teens, uh, and when that protest mood that we get into when things aren't exactly as we expected them to be and we're not having as much fun, we start to complain. And sometimes we move into one of what John Gottman used to call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. One of them tends to evoke the other. So People will find that when they start being critical in their complaints, saying things like, you always, or why can't you be like the person you were when I met you? Or I, you know, you're not the person I thought you would be, or I never saw this part of you before we got married or, you know, moved in together. If I'd known you were like this, I never would have gotten involved with you. And those are those, those characters, those inner characters that start emerging from behind the curtain when we get hurt, um, disillusioned, etc. I think this is what happened with my husband and I as far as stonewalling, but I don't know what it is about Sunday. Sunday, sometimes we're just off sync with each other. Um, But we got into just a little tiff. And and so he just got kind of emotionally, I guess, like a stonewall to me. Is that stonewalling? Where he kind of got silent and cut off? Yeah, I was like, no, this is a conversation. We are we. And he's like, eh. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, he'd he'd had enough. (laughs) You know, it's so difficult to, for so many people, if they want to raise something about the relationship where their motivation is to make it better. And I don't know how you were speaking or approaching him, 
But people can be extremely sensitive, even if you approach them very gently about something. Well, I'm more like um, a bull in a kind of closet, so I probably was not doing it other than very directly and excited. And yeah, <laughs> well, and that's that whole thing of, of co-regulation where what? you're you're actually um, aware of what, sometimes we call it the window of tolerance in your partner's nervous system, where if you come at them with too much oh, energy, they yeah. yeah, that's something that was actually coined by Peter Levine. And it's a really useful concept where when people are when we're pressing them beyond their window of tolerance, they tend to shut down or really kind of defend back uh, because they feel not good inside. And learning what a partner's window of tolerance is, is really important because if you can gauge it, um, for instance, I know some women who really like to talk things through and they will sit their partner down on the couch and they'll have a two hour conversation about something, well, not which hours, is yeah. blowing the circuits of the partner and they never <laughs> want to sit down and talk to them again. They're like, oh no, you want to have one of those talks. I'm not doing that. Um, so uh, I, I don't know what your husband's window is, but you might want to have a conversation about that with him. Well, I had just gotten back from visiting my son in California, and I hadn't been with any of my girlfriends. So I'm sure, and I told him at the end of the weekend, I probably should uh, schedule some time with my girlfriends, so shouldn't I? And he goes, yeah, because I think I just leaned on him a little too hard. So you could decompress from everything that happened in California? Yeah. You know, oh I, I tell people that sometimes. Do not try to turn your partner into your girlfriends if they have a, a, a limited amount of input time. I realized that I was doing it and I went, oh my God, this is not what I need to do. Yeah. Um, the I other thing for oh, the sorry. listener, the other thing for the listener is that listening is really an act of love. Oh, yeah. And when people understand that, I, I usually say that to the more avoidant partner who is maybe a little bit more introverted, that when they actually give listening time to a partner who really needs to decompress or process what they've been through. That is one of the greatest acts of love that you could possibly give that partner. Yeah. You were talking about uh, couples earlier and rhythms and all that. And in your book, Labyrinth of Love, it's a little bit lengthy of a paragraph, but I love how you write it. And I'd like to read it to our listeners. Uh, You say, the rhythms of ordinary life are incredibly important to the cohesion of a couple how we wake up, rituals that start the day, helping each other out the door in the morning, how we greet each other at the end of the day, nighttime rituals as we turn in, cooking pancakes on weekends, the familiar preparations of family celebrations and holidays. Oh, I think that is so true. Yes, very important. The the, the rhythms and the rituals of connection and these little small things that we do regularly they reinforce that sense of safety, connection, and that we're with someone who knows us and cares about us. Very important. Yeah. And then there was another that I loved. Let me find my notes. If I can find it. Oh, here it is. Um, this is from Carl Young. What are couples to do when they are so miserable and stuck? Carl Young says, when you're up against a wall, put down roots like a tree until clarity comes from a deeper source to see over that wall and grow. Yeah, yeah. It's a very wise statement. If you think about being a tree, 
with your roots into the deep self and your branches reaching up to the sky and out to your partner and the intertwining of those branches. It's a nice yeah. metaphor. Yeah. It reminded me of when I went to Muirwood Forest in California. That was yes. such a magic moment with those trees uh, that I had to literally sit down and just kind of soak them all in. Uh, and I can so see that being intertwined in a relationship. That visit to Muir Woods is something that everyone should do at some time in their life because the trees are so amazing. They're so old and so tall. And the feeling yeah. in that forest is just magical. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to go into deeper uh, description of the the four horsemen? Yes. Um, so the four horsemen that John D Gottman talks about are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So when we start to get critical with our partners, and that's different from a complaint. And I, I always tell people, if you have a complaint about something, offer a solution along with it. Don't just complain. Say, yeah, I I, this was upsetting to me, or I really didn't like this, and I was hoping for this, or in the future, could we do this? And that's the beginning of a conversation. It can't be a demand. Like, I didn't like this, so you need to do this in the future. That's a demand, and nobody does well on the receiving end of demand energy. But criticism is where you're kind of, where you're labeling them. And you're so selfish. You're so insensitive. Those kinds of things. And contempt is a second layer where there's a quality of dismissiveness or looking down your nose or treating the other person like they're not worth being related to. Um, and people can do that with stonewalling. Stonewalling sometimes is out of self-protection. I'm just withdrawing from you and kind of putting up a wall. But it can also be an eye roll, which is contemptuous and kind Ooh. of a turning away, like rolling your eyes and huffing and turning Ooh. away or leaving the room. Um, that mixing those two stonewalling with contempt is really hurtful for a partner. And of course, defensiveness, we all need to learn to speak in a way that evokes the least amount of defensiveness in a partner, which means that we're speaking gently. We're asking for things. We have clarity about what it's touching into in us. And we're really owning and speaking in eye language for me. This is what happens when you do such and such. And really owning that it's going on over here in me, but yeah. it's in response to something that's interpersonal. Right. So if we are gentler in the way that we speak, we're clear about what we're asking, and we're looking at the request as the beginning of a conversation, like, could you do that? Is that possible? Or do you have another suggestion? Mm -hmm. You know, and really getting into a solution-oriented, problem-solving conversation with our partners. That's what we want to move to. And I love in your book where you say, uh, when the four horsemen are galloping through a relationship, it's headed for demise. Yes. I, mean, I don't love that, but that's, I have the whole visual of the horses and the, you know, like the old stagecoach and the running off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You also talk in your, your book about getting to know each other's soft spots and uh, how sometimes people don't play fair. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's, there's nothing like an intimate relationship to really learn where people's sensitivities are. 
And there are partners who, when they're in the middle of a slog fest, where they're really into it with each other, really fighting, they will aim right for that raw spot, right for that tender spot. And that is one of the most destructive things that we can do in relationships is to hit somebody where it really, really hurts rather than moving towards a solution-oriented conversation and seeking to understand why something is so important for the other person. Just because you think it's stupid doesn't mean it's stupid for the other person. Or just you think it's, you know, just ridiculous. It doesn't mean it's ridiculous for the other person. So seek to understand. That's how we build the bond. And then um, we also talk about in this chapter, and we had a good experience with this Sunday, uh, those repetitive circular arguments. Yes, uh, and we should we should post that image in the sh- in the show notes. So oh, that's yeah. where it, it's related to interlocking complexes. So I will say something. It lands in Tom, my husband, and triggers something in him. So the, then he responds from that place, not from what I said, but from where it landed. And the impact might be very different from my intention. So then he responds from that defensive place. And I don't like the defensiveness. So that lands in me and sort of upsets me. And now I'm responding to the defensiveness from an upset place. I might be critical about the defensiveness. And then he gets more defensive and we just go round and round. And now we're way far away from the original topic or issue. And we're off in a loop, in a negative loop, one of those circular arguments that seem to be so difficult to resolve until we go one level deeper and understand, what did my comment hit in you? What did it stir up? What did you stir up in me? And then once we're talking about one level deeper, then a lot of times we can solve those circular arguments. So that's really about knowing yourself well. Oh my gosh, you have to know yourself well. That's also related to honesty. You know, sometimes people will ask the partner a question and they just answer without looking. And unless you look to see how you really think and feel, you might answer dishonestly without even meaning to. You might actually be telling the other person what they want to hear or saying something to calm them down. But it's not really true. And so we we have to know ourselves. We have to spend a moment to check in when we're asked a question. Like, what do I really think and feel about that in this moment? Or in, in our fun Sunday, uh, <laughs> just lit me on fire. We were in one of those circular arguments, but rather than saying that we're in a circular argument, my husband took his hand and did a circle over and over and over again, like he was tuning me out. <gasps> I thought somebody had lit a match under me. You know, but that's actually a good signal. Can you two work <laughs> that out? Where no. like that's the signal we're in what so it's we're on the topic of signals. It's like how do you interrupt the circular arguments? Yeah, it was probably good, but it just uh, yeah, I was being. I know I so that that one didn't work well for you in that moment. Well, no, it probably would. I was just being immature at the time. <laughs> you were in a younger self, which is where we usually I, I, are I when we're. I definitely was, and he was just trying to say, "Come on," you know. Yeah, you know what Tom does with me is he will say, "Is there anybody else in there?" oh god like could we find like another inner character to talk to and I usually my reaction to that is immediately I become furious for about three seconds (laughs) but then it's a wake-up call it's become a wake-up call for me I'm like okay what 
what is the archetypal grounding that I'm in right now? You know, am I, I mean, usually it's critical mother, you know, where I'm scolding or lecturing or doing something like that. And it's a wake up call for me to shift states, to move out of critical mother into a different place where I'm more relational. Because, you know, when you're in judgmental father, critical mother, rebel boy, rebel daughter, these are not relational states. And we, and we move into them. I've got a rebel daughter, absolutely. Well, and I even take this one step further into probably a little bit of woo-woo land for some of our listeners. But, you know, when I was traveling, I think you pick up energy when you travel. And if you don't get rid of it when you come home, a lot of times you bring it home. And I think that was part of what was going on is that I had been in airports and public places and all the stimuli. And I just was like off. Yes. And you know something, I'm just thinking about airports because people are usually pretty anxious in airports. And well, I don't like so, to fly. I do it, but I don't like to fly. Yeah. It's easy to pick up on the ambient anxiety of an environment that you're in. It's good yeah. for people to know that because, again, speaking of bringing things home, a lot of people bring home the feeling state of their offices where they work. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's not even woo-woo. That's called mirror neurons. That's like, you know, you're in a, it, it's, it's brain stuff. It's like you get into a resonance in the environment that you're in, which is why it's so important that we create ecologies of the home that feel like you're sailing into a harbor, peaceful. Oh, I like that. Sailing into a harbor, the harbor, the home as a harbor. That's a yeah, goal. We, we do that. We, uh, light candles and incense and try and have music and try and settle back from the craziness of life. Yeah. yeah. Incense especially really helps me. Okay. Well, that's good. That's yeah. That's your little woo woo streak, which we all love. Yeah. It's this Indian incense that I like. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, what have you got there? Uh, talk to us about, and I had never heard this before until I read your book, but I thought, oh my God, this is so true. Even not necessarily in your husband and wife relationship, but even, you know, relationships with friends, uh, where people create no fly zones. Yes. We do that without even realizing it. So the no fly zone, that's a term that I created, because I like to think in, in Venn diagrams, these interlocking circles with a common area in the middle of where we can relate safely. And people learn what that area is, because when we're getting to know each other, we start sharing ourselves, talking about things, and then we realize we just hit a nerve and we back up. Or we might drill in, you know, it's like, what was that? <laughs> but um, we learn over time that people have tender spots. And people have areas that they're not, they're just very uncomfortable with. And so a lot of times what people will do is they will define the the area not to talk about, not to enter. And I call that the no-fly zone. So if you were in a plane, it's the demilitarized zone before you've crossed the line into enemy territory. And people will start doing U-turns. And what's dangerous about no-fly zones is that the area of connection can get smaller and smaller over the life of a relationship. If somebody is a pleaser or a perfectionist, or they're just kind of anxious about losing the partner or angering the partner, 
they will just not talk about certain things and not enter certain topics or time zones, you know, like, don't talk to me in the morning, don't talk to me in the evening. Um, We can only talk in these little spaces. And all of those U-turns that people do away from connection, because they don't know how to sit with conflict. They don't know how to sit with difference. Difference feels catastrophic, or it evokes too much defensiveness. And that's where people need to turn to deep curiosity. Like, huh, this is really interesting. What is this? Tell me more about how you came to see things this way or feel this way. What's the history? Why is this such a big deal for you? And because people don't know how to enter into that curiosity, they get either scared or defensive and they do those U-turns and then we've got these growing no-fly zones. Yeah, I love in your book where you say, especially couples that have been together for a while, they may get along, but the relationship won't deepen or grow because growth would require them to enter the no-fly zone. Yes. And, And coupled with that is the assumption that you know everything you need to know about your partner. I did a lot of that this week in my practice with people who've been married a long time. And I was trying to get them to go one level deeper in a particular conversation. And the partner kept saying, well, I I know how you feel about that, or I know what you're going to say, or I understand. And then I was actually throwing in, I was interrupting and saying, ask some more questions about that, or tell the other person what you think you understand. So they told the other person what they thought they understood, and it wasn't what the person was trying to get across. And it did not include the one level deeper. So once they did that, and the person that the the speaker was actually forced in that situation to look a little deeper and clarify what they were trying to get across, they actually learned something about themselves. And they were able to put words on feelings that they hadn't really fine tuned before. And then they spoke those and the partner said, oh, I didn't realize that. So there was a deepening of the relationship and a deepening of the bond as they began to understand each other beyond the circle of what they thought they knew. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, I, this concept in your book, I, I'll be honest, I, I'm going to need your help with because I I think I get it, um, but I need some clear examples. And that would be um, the shadow boxing. Mm-hmm. So can you so, break that down yeah, let's, for our listeners and for myself? Yeah. So let's define shadow in the first place. So what we mean by shadow is that shadow is always unconscious. Oftentimes people think that shadow is uh, sort of a rejected part of self, something that you don't like about yourself that you put in the shadow. But really, if we're looking at the Jungian interpretation of shadow, we're really looking at something that's unconscious. And in other words, it's so rejected that we don't even own that it exists in us. So like and an inner child wound or a teenage wound or a... It's usually, it, it can often be an inner child wound that happened really early on where we made an early decision about life or about ourselves. And then that decision becomes like the fish in water. You know, it's just, a, it just seems true, but we're not even aware about the age that we made that decision. Um, people make all sorts of decisions about themselves, like they're unlovable or that people eventually always mistreat me, or people can't be trusted, or certain people can't be trusted, or I'm defective, 
or I always fail. I can never succeed. There's all sorts of decisions. Um, Jeff Young does a great job of outlining them. They're called early maladaptive schemas. He does a great job of outlining them. Um, and we can put that in the show notes to one of, one of his books where people can learn a little bit more about early maladaptive schemas. Um, so shadow is, so for instance, let's say, let's say I really begin to believe at an early stage that no one is ever really there for when I need them or that no one really understands me, that I'm kind of odd or other and no one really understands me. And so that's in shadow. And so we're trying to talk to a partner and let's say that that's the underlying, it could also be called a complex in my way of thinking. So let's say I'm talking to my partner and my partner reflects back something that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about or what I'm trying to get across. And now I've got an activated complex out of my shadow, unconscious. Oh, here it is again. He doesn't understand me. No one ever understands me. I've never been understood by anybody. Now I'm either hurt or angry. So my next response, instead of saying, no, let me clarify. You know, that's not it exactly. Let me tell you again. Lightly is going to come from a place of hurt or resentment or anger or something along those lines. I might even say something like, why don't you ever listen to me? Or you know, you're so self-absorbed, you never really listen to what I'm, it could be anything that I respond, but it's a sharp, harsh response. Now that's going to land in the partner. Maybe the partner has a, an, I never do anything right complex. So now I'm telling them that they haven't got it right. And now they feel a sense of shame and defectiveness. And, you know, so they are responding back, I'm really trying here, but you're so difficult to talk to or something like that. And, now that lands again in, you know, here, they're not still not hearing me. Nobody ever understands me. So that's the shadow dimension of what's activated. That's the one level down into the unconscious material that if we can really start to, to learn a little bit about where we're sensitive and where we go, the meaning we attach to the experiences that we're having, the meaning we attach to the experiences we're having and why we attach that particular meaning. Why that particular meaning? So could another way to say that be, uh, it's the emotional lens based on things you may not even be aware of in yourself that you may project onto somebody else, your partner or your friend or your sibling. And you get- That's beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. really think about that but that was because I know yeah sometimes I'll get activated and I, I'm like okay I don't know where when that what that's I don't know about. what this is yeah so and that's I, then I have when, to be jealous. yeah so in the book I talk about the process of begin within which means that when we get activated and we're kind of mystified by our own reaction or overreaction it's good to spend a couple minutes quietly away from the situation Mm -hmm. saying, huh, I wonder what that was. And just what I like to do is I like to sit with the feeling of the activation, like where it's, where it is in my body. And it's usually a sense. Is that what you're saying? Say again? Like like a body part, like your heart, your knees, your head. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It might be a flutter in the stomach or energy in the arms or feeling of pressure in the head or heaviness in the chest 
um, churning stomach, things of that sort. And you just stay with the sensation and you just sit with it. And you, and you don't try to figure anything out, but you just notice as you're sitting with the sensation, the pictures that arise, because you'll get some memories associated with the sensation. Don't try to figure it out. Just stay with the sensation and notice what emerges. And whatever emerges, spend a little time with that memory and see how it might be related to what just happened, because oftentimes that'll be an earlier memory. And you can ask things of yourself like, if can I, when is the earliest time I ever experienced this churning in my stomach? When is the earliest time I ever experienced this energy in my arms or this heaviness in the chest? Um, and then just sit with the memory and see like what was happening then? What did I not get that I needed? What did I get that I didn't want? What was the disappointment? Was it the dis- what was the decision I made in that moment about like how to survive or how to get my needs met? Then you get a lot of insight. And oftentimes, actually, when people come into a more depth-oriented psychotherapy, that's the kind of thing that we do in psychotherapy is we find the, the root system, the tendrils of where this originated, where the past is no longer the past, it's become the present. So we're still reactive to something, but it's really got its roots in the past. So would that be a situation where you would do like I have done EMDR or I think you do, if I remember correctly, somatic. I do some somatic experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. Is that where you would kind of, if you wanted to get a deeper handle on why that keeps happening for you or that emotion or that body or, or am I not thinking that right? No, I, I think that's a great use for EMDR. And usually EMDR, which is a trauma modality that therapists are trained in, it's really great for big events, but it can also be used for, for smaller. But this is something that individuals can do without a psychotherapist, just sitting with themselves and thinking right. about sensations and asking themselves, when have I felt like this before? Yeah, what I was thinking is that if you, for instance, if you have the... Uh, feeling that abandonment keeps happening in your life and you keep feeling it, let's just say in your stomach, that if you wanted to take it one more step further, you could do EMDR or somatic to help you get over that. It'd be a really good idea. Really good idea. Go find yourself a good psychotherapist and do a little work on that because when you do that work and you get freed of that automatic emergence of the complex of abandonment or whatever it is, defectiveness, the fact that every you know eventually everybody hurts me whatever that is if you get that rooted out your life will be so much fuller and i did not know this but i had done some research on emdr i know we're kind of off on a tangent here and i'll just be short with it uh for a friend of mine that's gone through some stuff and i did not realize but uh prince harry uses it quite a bit hmm. and his success in getting over what happened with princess diana which i thought was sweet there's even a video oh. online about that it's really good. It's such a great endorsement for how we really can feel free to do some psychotherapy without being mentally ill. That's right. That's right. I call it like, I don't know if this is appropriate. This is a lay woman's description, but I call it like rebooting my emotional computer. Good. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Okay. Cool. Yep. And it's worth, you know, I think we all have stuff to clean up inside because nobody gets, nobody gets through childhood without being 
damaged in some way. I remember the first time that Tommy rolled off the changing table, my son, and I called a friend and said, oh, I should not be a mother. <laughs> she said, look, I know you're a therapist, but get yourself a jar. And every time something like that happens, put 20 bucks in the jar. And when he goes off to college, hand the jar to him and say, here's your therapy money. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh, my God. Nobody gets through childhood without a few little nicks and scrapes. Uh, Well, you know, we're all imperfect humans raising other humans. Yes. And being alive with other humans. So That's right. We're not perfect and no. we unintentionally wound people. Some we yeah, you know, this is not just our partners, but sometimes we unintentionally wound our friends and our children and our coworkers and if we can all learn to be curious about what was the nerve that we just hit? What is that about for the other person? And to compassionately at least listen to why they are sensitive to that. Yeah. It helps so much. Yeah. Hmm. Um, this has been just such a rich chapter for me, I guess now since I've been married three years and a lot of these things are starting to show up. And um, I'm always coming back to your book and going, okay. It's like a little, little guidebook. It is fabulous. I, t- I told you I buy it as wedding gifts for people now. It's good. It's good because people need to understand that they're usually in the enchantment when they get married and that they're going to hit inevitably in every relationship, every work relationship, friendship, marriage, you're going to hit the disenchantment phase where you just start bumping into some stuff and you have to learn how to talk about it and... Uh, figure out what it is and get to the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Remind people, Chelsea, where they can email you if they have specific relationship questions that of course we would never name names or cities or anything like that, but we can certainly discuss them on the podcast. So you can email me at heartsidechats at gmail.com. Heartsidechats, plural chats at gmail. Dot com And I love it when people email questions or comments about the show. So please feel free to email me, comment, question, uh, and, and check out my website for the Luminous Woman Weekend. It's going to be a wonderful weekend, and I have a few more spaces left. And for those of you who have not seen Chelsea in person, she is uh, such a dynamic speaker and takes complex subjects and breaks them down in a way that you will really understand and go away understanding and have a better life with what you've learned from her. Thanks, Lisa. You're welcome. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Heartside Chats. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating. That will help to elevate the podcast so that others can benefit from the content. If you have a relationship question or would like to communicate thoughts and feelings about anything we talked about today, consider sending us an email at heartsidechats at gmail.com. I also have a public Facebook group you can join called Heartside Chats. Thanks for listening.